Hello, hello. Welcome to Ami Tuckered Out. I am your host, Ami Tucker Ravel, and today I am a little tuckered out. We had a birthday party for both of my girls on Saturday who turned seven and four, and we did it pandemic styles. Just them, their two cousins, a shit ton of balloons everywhere, a magician slash joker guy who was funny slash scary. So confused on how I feel. And a bunch of just random ghetto games I set up around the house. And they had a blast. They loved it. They didn't even care that it was just the four of them. So great weekend celebrating my two girls. Great birthday week. And in honor of their birthday week, I am actually interviewing someone who is now their favorite author, Sheetal Sheth, who was also an acclaimed actress, producer, and activist. She is known for performances in a wide range of roles and has starred in over 20 feature films and many TV shows, winning five Best Actress Awards on the film festival circuit. She is an outspoken advocate and is involved in a number of fantastic nonprofits, and she is the first Indian American to appear in Maxim Magazine. Sheetal has op-eds in CNN, The Daily Beast, Thrive Global, her first children's book, Always Anjali debuted to critical acclaim and has become a favorite for schools and parents like myself. The series is the first picture book series that features a South Asian hero. And she has a new book coming out called Bravo Anjali, which is part of the series. She has definitely been a trailblazer for other women of color across media. We had a blast talking. We, you know, busted out with a little Gujarati. It was awesome. So I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Sheetal Sheth. Hey guys, I wanted to share a new podcast with you that I've checked out and just love called The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. And we all know women of color are too often forgotten in most media coverage. So The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics is like the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. Host Ashanti Golar speaks with influential activists, politicians, journalists, and more who really played a big role in the 2020 elections. And we all know that women of color will play a key role in what happens beyond election day. So we need to be listening to women of color leading the way. Please listen and subscribe to the Brown Girls Guide to Politics wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to Tuckered Out with Ami. This is Josh Radner from How I Met Your Mother and other TV shows and other things. I don't know. Maybe you can use something like that. I talked to Lisa in June. I was a PA on her set 18 years ago in Austin. Which movie? It was originally called Ball and Chain and then The Arrangement. And so I was basically like Cal Penn's bitch like gave him call I don't even I don't I don't even know what I was doing I was in between like I had just got laid off from Enron because that didn't work out and I'm from Texas and so I was just in Austin got on the I don't know anyway so we became girlfriends and I was like let's let's reach out to her again and we connected and fell in love again and we of course talked about you and I was like you know what I and then I knew that the book was coming out so I was like I'm just gonna reach out no I'm glad I'm glad it worked out yeah so 
we can all finally breathe again. We have a normal human being in the White House. Not yet. Not yet. I almost, I, I was just saying to Neil, I'll just say Neil, my husband, because I hate weird saying my husband, but I was just saying to him yesterday, it's clear he doesn't want the job. I wish he would just pack up and leave so that he, Joe Biden can start because I'm feeling very anxious about everything he's not doing right now and everything he's trying to destroy on the way out. So I would rather him just be like, you know what? It's fine. Take it. Just do it right now. I mean, when you have a narcissistic, sociopathic personality disorder, I don't know if he even can do that. This is going to be the slowest two months of our lives, basically. But hopefully so. Very soon, a normal president, a normal person leading the country, and then hopefully the vaccine. What is the first thing you want to do when we can all walk around like it's 2019 again? You know, I will say not wearing a mask you know, and being able to just walk around would be amazing. Just having just the ability to kind of take in stuff and not feeling like I can't, you know, I mean, I'm all for masks, by the way, just make that very clear, but I can't see anybody. And it's, and it is, you know, obviously we're seeing people's eyes, but walking around, like I really loved connecting even with strangers. And I feel like that has been a piece that I really do miss, whether it be on the subway, walking around, it's like those little things because we're all covered up and especially now it's getting cold. So like, we're like head to toe. I dropped the kids off today at school and I was like, hat, like all you could see was this. And the mask is actually now a sense of warmth. It's actually nice. You know, I don't need need a scarf. And so I just want to see people again. I just want to see, you know, people's faces. (laughs) Right. I think also, I'm also getting older. Maybe I'm just getting, I can't, you can't hear people properly because you can't look at their mouths. And I'm like, huh, that, and also I mean, I'm still getting acne from this thing. I'm like, what is happening? I know, I know. It is weird, the whole... I know. I'm like, this acne <laughs> sucks. It's terrible. So I don't know about you. So this past year for me, you know, we moved. I have You have two girls. I have two girls. In a weird, fucked up way, everything's, all, of course, horrendous. Pandemic's horrendous. But in a weird way, I've enjoyed it, being at home with them, like not having FOMO, not having to dress up, not... I mean, just, I feel a little bit in a weird way calmer. In a weird way, not. But then, like, is there any part of you that feels like you enjoyed this time? Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm also very much a kind of loner homebody. And I think because so much of my jobs are out there and I do love people and I love that aspect of it. But there's a huge part of me that's very much a loner. And that's something that Neil knew very much like I'm very much like leave me alone for a while. No one bothers. It's hard with two kids, especially during COVID. But finding that for myself, I love being by myself. I love living by myself. I love taking trips by myself. And now that the kids are back in school, thank God, you know, fingers crossed they can stay. I'm able to have some semblance of peace. I mean, my husband's working from phone, but he from the, but he's in the other room. And so that has brought some sanity back. So that and I will say as we talked about, my kids are three and a half and six. They're such in a great age where like I'm soaking up every moment. And I feel really, really grateful that I have all this time because they're so great. Like they're so freaking deliciously cute and aggravating, but like, I love them so much. And I'm like getting so much time during this sweet spot, I feel that I might not have had. And so I'm really grateful for that. I cannot agree more. I was just telling her that Kyla's turning four and I'm getting sad about it because she's getting older. But I was like, what a fantastic age. I feel like with my older one, I didn't appreciate it as much because I was just, uh, but with my, with Kyla, with the younger one, 
Like yesterday, she was asking me why boys stand up going pee pee, <laughs> and then like why they hold their pee pees. And I'm like, I wish I should have recorded this. This is just fantastic. Like, I feel like I missed that with with the elder one. So yeah, that that kind of stuff. I'm just like, this is it's been great. I feel that, I mean, I don't know if you're having more kids or plan to, or who knows what happens. I know I'm not having more kids. And so, and it was a choice that I didn't make. I wanted more, but because of my health, I couldn't. And so once I had to make peace with that, I found, I find myself very much in step with my youngest and trying to like squeeze every bit of out of, cause I really love the baby age and I'm not going to have that ever again. And I've had friends who've had babies over the pandemic, but I haven't been able to see them and hold them. And so like, I really miss those things, you know, cause I love that age. And so as much as I love them and their ages, like there's that specialness of that early. And I was really hoping to have more. And so I'm like, Oh, now I have to get it every bit I can. <laughs> Yeah, I tried with my husband. I was like, so he's like, yeah, don't touch me. I'm like, well, I was like, I don't really have to touch you. Anyways, we moved on from that. He's, uh, I tried. He said no, but I can still get him drunk. It's fine. And so, yes, you published a book during this craziness, which is amazing. Congrats. So I want to talk about the first one, which is always Anjali. Came out in 2018 to wide acclaim. And is the first and only in this age group featuring an Indian American girl hero. Yeah, any I mean any any South Asian period, not even girl like at all, which is amazing. It doesn't exist. And I was shocked when I realized like when I was told that I was I was like first check before you say something like that. And then when you and then and there isn't there's nothing that exists and it's really sadly not surprising but also surprising. No, both. You would assume by now someone would have done that. And so the first thing, so I, you know, I was telling you, I read it to my girls and I just read it. My girl's turning seven. We're getting her, we're getting her a bike. Ah, I love it. All that stuff. I was like, this is, this is amazing. So she asked me to ask you one question before she went to school today. She said, can you ask Sheetal Andy if we can make an Anjali cape for Halloween? An Anjali cape. I would love that. I love that idea. I think absolutely. She can do whatever she wants. I love that idea. All right. Well, she she wants to do that. And that's the one question she was talking about this morning. Just make sure that when she dresses up and has that cape, she's got to have mismatched socks. I don't know if she noticed that. Uh, that's already okay. there. <laughs> that's already there. That's that's just natural. They're they're my daughters. We don't we don't like to match anything. I do feel like nowadays we're seeing more and more characters that look like us, that look like our kids. I mean, there's a lot of history when it comes to representation. I've been a part of this for a very long time, so I'm probably a little bit more sensitive to it because I feel like I've been having these conversations for literally over 25 years. And so I'm probably in a place where like I've been there, done that over it. So I've really moved forward. And that's why for my for the book series that I've created. It's very much, she's second generation. She's moved on. I do not want, I'm over the kind of first generation conversation. I've done that like 20 years ago. And so even though 20 years ago, the mainstream wasn't ready for it. And now it seems like people are more open to having conversations and not othering us. It's still like, I've, a lot of us already did that, you know? And so I've moved on, you know? And so for me, I'm not interested in keeping the narratives that seem to be the ones, especially that white creators are interested in which and when it comes to Indian people it's arranged marriage it's mythology it's religion all of those aspects seem to be a part of the narratives when it comes to us and I'm frankly not here for it what what have you seen that you think okay this is it this makes sense well I think there's a lot of just great 
content out there, you know, and I think the ones that I like more that I tend to, to appreciate are ones that are done by kind of own voices, people who are giving the, I mean, it's one thing to want to see things, but you need to give, make space for the creators to tell the stories that they want to tell. And I think, you know, for the longest time, people would always say, like when you were pitching, say 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, the story's too small. And I was like, really? Because that experience to you may feel that way because you feel like they're not part of, quote, this like dominant majority culture. But like the story's not small. You just see it that way. And so I think we're in a point now where hopefully people realize how offensive it is to say something like that. That the story of a farmer in a country across the world is not small, actually. And the experiences are worth telling. And that story is something that actually will make our country better and the world closer. So I think we're, we're inching towards that. But I love stories that are told by people who have a connection to it, that want to tell a story, that want the nuance. You know, I'm a big fan of Chimamanda, who talks about the dangers of a single story, meaning that every person, every culture cannot have the same experience, story, etc. And telling one story, which I feel like for South Asians for a long time was that we have arranged marriages, we celebrate Diwali and Holi, and that's it. And maybe we're terrorists on the side. And so like, these are like, I'm like, that's not my story, you know? And so I think having a nuanced, layered, several variations of stories out there to represent us as a collective is what we need and need to demand. Is this why you got into the children's books? So I started writing children's books back when I was pregnant with Ember, my oldest, who's six. So that was now like seven years ago, seven or eight years. So it's been a long time, way before this. And it really came from me when I was pregnant with her, like spending a lot of time reading kids' licks. I was trying to, you know, when you're curating that first library for your first child, it's so fun. And I was just out there looking at books and it was really like most of my life and most of my other job, dismayed at the lack of representation. And similarly, whenever I would find a book that had people of color, it was around an extraordinary event. It was around a holiday or a religion or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, why are there no books about just us being people, you know? Everyday stuff, everyday things. Everyday stuff, yes. We should be able to wash our hands and walk our dogs just as much as everybody else. And I always say, until we have enough stories about the mundane, as much as we do the extraordinary, we're never going to feel like we are in the fabric of society. And so we are, we need to be allowed to do that as well. And so I didn't know if I had any kind of juice in it, but I just started writing because I do, I mean, I also have a very extensive background with working with kids my whole life. And I've minor in education. And I've taught, if I wasn't an actress, I'd be a teacher for sure. So it's not new to me. And I work a lot with children. And so that combined with I love telling stories and obviously being an actor and writing. It felt like a good mix, but you never know. It took me about a year before I was even comfortable showing what I had written to anybody. And then from there, it took another year to like get it in shape, you know, to, when, once I spoke to industry professionals. But I've le I learned a ton. And then it took a while to find the right home. And similarly, at the time, we weren't having the conversations we're having now. And even that was what only six, seven years ago. I had a lot of people at big publishers want me to whitewash it and do certain things that I was not comfortable doing. And so I really need to make a choice of, as for where I wanted to land. I also wanted to retain ownership as much as possible. And so to get the deal that I wanted and have the ability to keep it, the story and the characters the way I wanted to, I had to kind of decide what the best place was. And then I found a great publisher in Mango and Marigold who wanted that, who saw that. And I very much feel like partners that I can partner with 
And so, yeah, so that is why I started doing it. And then I just love it. And I will say like from that book and doing my book tour between school visits, events, bookstores, it is such pure joy for me. And I didn't realize how much I missed kind of being in that environment because I did so much of it in another part of my life. And I, it'll make me cry. Like it is so joyful to me to be, I mean, it's my favorite thing to be around kids. And so I have now written, so the second book is coming out, the third will be out the next year. And I've written one, four or five other books that are in process right now that are not Anjali books, but just other books. And I have a chapter book series I'm doing. So I'm just like, I love it. I love it. And I, it's going to be a big part of my life. So I'm going to ask you a really dumb question because I don't know anything about publishing. You can ask me. There's no dumb questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. This this podcast is all about dumb questions and, and cursing and venting. So you, we can do that too. Is it easier to write a children's book versus just a book for adults because it is 12 pages long and you know there's illustrations? So there's different categories of children's books. There's board books. This is an illustrated book. So the general norm is 32 pages. Then there's early readers and there's chapter books. Then there's middle grade YA novel, etc. All of them, by the way, all writing is hard. All writing is hard. It just is. I have found, and I have not tried to write a novel or middle grade. And the discipline it takes to do that is not something that I feel like I have or nor that I've been wanting to, although I have had people who want, who've like tried to commission me to write some. I don't think I'm ready for it. But I will tell you that the experience I have in just the children's illustrated book form and chapter book form that I'm writing, the reason why I think it's hard is because you need to do less. You need to do more with less. And so the words you use have to, first of all, also be accessible to kids. And you have to be able to, I find the best children books not be didactic, have it be fun, at least the ones I want to write. And so choosing your words so carefully and then you have to edit like more of them out. Like there must have, this book was probably four times as long as it was before it ended up here. And so you have a very limited amount. I mean, these books are generally 500 to a thousand words. And I remember when I look at my drafts now, I'm like, oh my God, how am I even going to take this down? You know? And that's when you also find like, maybe it's not best for, maybe it's not best meant this narrative for an illustrator. Maybe it's a chapter book. Maybe it's that. And that's when you start to figure out what is the best medium for this story? And so I personally love illustrated books, picture books, this category, because I feel like they really resonate with lots of age groups. You're not too young. And frankly, you know, I have 12 year olds who love it because of the messaging and what's in there. And so it just depends. But I I do find children's books to be really hard, like all writing. And I've had other people ask me the same thing. And I just say, okay, so just go try it and tell me, tell me how you feel, (laughs) you know? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, look, I've written, I don't know, maybe like 12 articles for magazines. And I mean, even that alone is daunting. It's a different muscle, you know, because I, yeah, I write, I've written as well. I've written screen, you know, obviously movie stuff and op-eds. It's a complete, they're all hard. They're all hard. I, at least for me, I find writing to be hard. Yeah, I know. When, when people say everyone can be a writer, I'm like, yeah, not really. You can be a writer, but it might not get published. I will tell you, just like anything, kind of the Gladwell's 10,000 hours, I have gotten better. And the more you do it, the better you will get. And certain parts of it will get easier. The first draft of anything for me is always the hardest part. It's And it's very much me just like getting something on the page because the revising and editing is more fun and exciting. But like that initial draft, 
which is always the worst thing ever and you hate, is for me the hardest part. Right. It's like podcasting. Before editing, I'm like, oh my God, I sound like an idiot. So question, you have two girls. Do you think if you had two boys, Anjali would have been Arjun? No, I don't. And I am a huge proponent of not believing in boy books or girl books. I think it does us a disservice. It's about the content, not the message. And frankly, I've always felt that it's really important, especially for boys to read stories with women at the center of it. And when Kamala was elected and everyone's talking about what it means to women, I go, no, no, think about what this means for men, adult men, frankly, (laughs) and boys. To see a woman of color, especially in power, we need more of that for the boys. Because I don't think, I think we can do everything we want for our girls, but we're not going to make any difference until we fix our boys' hearts. No, I totally agree. And so then story, you know, the Always Anjali is about, she's learning about her name and what it means to her and how it's empowering. And I read somewhere that you were told you would have to change your name in order to be part of the film industry. That must have been hit, hit close to home. Like a lot of us. Yeah, I mean, I have many stories of when I was starting out over 20 years ago of people from all levels, from representatives to managers, agents, producers, directors, casting directors, several who told me I wouldn't get the job unless I did. And I didn't. And so, yeah, it's something that has been around for a long time. It keeps coming up. I find it to be a narrative, unfortunately, that has stayed relevant. We just saw it, obviously, with Senator Purdue deliberately mispronouncing Kamala's name. And by the way, when that happened, everyone's like, oh, my God, always Anjali, which was a nice, sad parallel. And so the book is really about making sure our kids feel like they don't have to change any part of themselves to fit in. Now, the entry point for Anjali in this is her name. And that's very much a personal, you know, taking it from personal and my friends' lives. And so most of my writing has elements of truth to it. But it really was very much about, I was I was thinking about what was going around in the world and seeing what our kids were feeling. And I'm like, kids shouldn't feel like that on any level, you know, whether it be their name, their hair color, their sexuality, their person, who they are, all of that. And it's just, you know, that's why the dedication is Mayor Little's Always Feel Mighty is, you know, that should be basic. I'm going to actually get my girl's name on a license plate little thing like that, too. It gave me the idea. And then the second installment, Bravo Anjali, is coming out next year. I pre-ordered it. Very excited. And I showed the girls all the little gifts, little things that are coming with it. And it has music. Are you kidding me right now? I'm excited. And this one is Anjali having to deal with being the only girl in the room, which could not come out at a better time. Yeah, it is interesting. It's funny. Somebody said to me, you're timing. I'm like, I didn't time any of no, but it's, it is. So I'll give you a little insight and you can tell your girls this. So each book I had planned at the end of Always Anjali, there's a picture of her playing the subla. So each book will always have an Easter egg at the end to kind of give you a little hint as for what the next book is. So that's there on purpose. And so I always knew I wanted to do something with music in that world. And I have a lot of like so many like discarded drafts of what the second book was going to be. And then when I was really getting into the writing of it, I remember scrapping it and being like, I don't like any of these things. It didn't feel right. And then Me Too was happening and Hillary Clinton was happening, who I'm a big fan of. And I just saw story after story of women who I feel have never lived their fullest potential because of people not basically being okay with it. And I don't think it's just women. I think it's all across the board. And in, gen- you know, there's there's certain industries that are gender heavy, depending on what it is. 
And so I just started thinking about that. And I thought, you know, I wonder what that would be like. Like, what would it be me like in a kid's book? Would there is there a version of that to talk about this? Because it's something that I see with me and my friends, kids, boys and girls on both sides when they're put into some gender bias. And so I just started like thinking about that. And I was thinking, and then when I remembered that Thubla, I was like, oh my God, well, Thubla is a, is a heavy male dominated music field. Maybe there's something in there that would be organically, that would work. And so I just started experimenting. And the more I did it, the more I liked it. It's one that I did not throw away. <laughs> and I was like, I think this is it. I think this works. And I really like for me, this book is very much a tribute to anybody who's ever felt like they haven't been able to shine as brightly as they've wanted for whatever reason. And I think it's really important to get that young in our kids, you know, really young. And so the message, you know, how like in Always Anjali, the the line is to be different is to be marvelous. In this book, the kind of line of the book is never dim your light. And she has to learn that she you'll see how what happens with her and everything. And there's a lot of things that happen to get her to that place. But I think that's a really important kind of message for our kids. Well, very. I don't know about your girls. I've already, I mean, heard from Anya's mouth that, oh, no, that's a boy thing or that's a girl thing. And I'm like, okay, I I really don't think it's coming from us. I mean, maybe it is and we don't know it or the shows they're watching. I just, I don't know. But I'm like, how, why do you think the boy, that boy could push that and you couldn't? Or it was something very, you know, minor, but it's already kind of in her mind that boys do certain things that and girls can't. And I'm like, wow, it's already starting. It's already, I see it with mine too. And I'm like, I know we're not saying these things because I know us, but like somehow it's fair. So maybe un- it's happening by mistake or they're getting it from other things. A hundred percent. And so I'm like, we need to stop it immediately. I know. I was like, wait a minute. I'm trying so hard here. And I was like, I don't understand. And then I yell at my husband. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, yeah, it's just... So yeah, these books are needed because it's these biases are coming out from from we don't know where. Yeah, and I think especially with like little bodied people, which are our kids, because they have these big feelings and a lot of things are happening and they're going through it by this is all happening. And when I was working on the book, you know, I have a focus group with my own kids and I have friends, kids. So like, I have a really great focus group. They want to have these conversations. You know, they want to have these books. There are there's certainly a room for books about like the pigeon who can't fly. But the point is the kids really want to have real conversations about things they're dealing with and find a way to express their emotion. And so you'll see at the end of this book, I made a point to make sure her friend who was her old friend from when she was a kid, this boy who gave her a hard time, I didn't let him off the hook. And I wanted them both. And my publisher actually had a great note for me when we were editing it to, to be like, I think you should lean even harder on that. And I was like, interesting. I had to find a language that felt appropriate, but enough so that we can model what it would be like to talk about your feelings when you're feeling like that with your friend and making sure that we hold people accountable. Obviously we can move forward, but like, let's talk about it, you know? And so I'm just trying to give language and behavior that our kids are going to have to deal with for them to, to hopefully learn from. And it's so funny because I talked to all our girlfriends, our age. And I don't think any of this, we didn't talk about any of this growing up with our parents. Our parents were not equipped to have social, the social emotional learning piece of it. Chupre beta, chalse, but the chalse, just, there was never any discussion on anything. I'm like, I don't understand how we're not more dysfunctional. Same, same. I say that all the time because people always ask me about that. And I'm like, look, my parents were just trying to get through the day and get food on the table. And honestly, like, 
I could not be more thankful that for everything they did, but no, they had zero social emotional conversations with me. <laughs> they weren't equipped for it and they didn't they they were just trying to survive. And it's understandable. And thank God, I think most most of us turned out okay. And so but we're lucky that we have that we're armed with this knowledge. So I'm going to talk about a little bit about your childhood, and then we're going to get a little bit into the films, just so, so everyone kind of has your history a little bit. I won't. I won't and there's a lot, but I, I, I've cut it down. I promise. So you're you're Guju Jane, just like my husband. Typical Guju household. Yeah. Strict yeah, parents. Yeah. Quiet. Yeah. Uh, did, did they? I mean, my parents made me do like Bharatanatyam and stuff. Were you doing any of that? You know, it's funny. I wanted to do more, and my parents wouldn't let me. I think it was a money thing. It was like always like constantly like that cost this, that cost that. So I was allowed to do as much as I wanted, but it had to be free. <laughs> so I had to do, so I did a lot of community stuff. I played a lot of sports. I did dance. There was like our community dance troupe that I like dance with. Again, that was free, and but I could do that every weekend. So between dancing and I loved basketball, those were my kind of things. I, I read that. That's awesome. There were there weren't many Indian girls playing basketball back in the day. So that's that's awesome. I mean, trust me, you didn't miss anything with Bharatanatyam because I ended up dropping out before like the big what's the what's it called Angrangatham, and that was twenty eight years ago. And my dad still mentions it every time I go home. So that worked out quite well for me. I turned that was that time where I turned turned into a tomboy. So I was like, I'm done. And then in high school, you were a nerd, which is fantastic. You did well, like all nice Guju kids do. But then you actually discovered your love for acting during high school? Yes. I'm always envious when I learn this about people because I think it's so amazing that you knew this is what you wanted to do. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do. So I think it's it's just great that you had the senses to understand what you wanted to do. Well, I don't think I really quite understood... All I knew is that I never felt like that before when I was doing it. So when I, so I kind of hooked into this feeling of like, I love this. I've never loved anything like this. How do I do more of this is kind of where I was at. Well, you knew enough to go to Tisch School of Arts, right? <laughs> so, so that's pretty good. And then I'm sure your parents were like mine. Like, how did they react into, to you going into the arts? I lied about a lot. it's all true I had to have a coming you know to we had to have the like kind of conversation at some point but I did lie a lot in terms of the the not that they didn't know I was doing it but the gravity and the seriousness in which I was pursuing it as a profession was something that I don't think they really understood because I was lying about it and I think they really thought I mean I did I actually applied to grad school for education and then it was really a very much like that was when I had to be like, I'm not going, you know. And by the way, I do have a major in the BFA in acting. And they're like, but we didn't think you'd actually make that your profession. We thought that it was just a thing you were doing. And I'm like, I didn't, we didn't spend all this money and spend all this, all this time in your, you know, NYU for, for that. But anyway, yeah, so it wasn't, you know, and I still don't, I mean, they know what I do, but I find that when people are not in the industry, even my friends, not even just my parents, they have no idea what my daily life is like. And they don't think that I have a quote, real job. Yes. And meanwhile, I'm like, I have like 30 jobs and I am busier than you could ever imagine. But they don't know that because they don't think about it that way. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you're juggling 10 times more than most people with the one job. And also it's hard. To, and it's also you don't turn it off when you're a creative person. You're not, you're not leaving it somewhere. 
you can't turn it off. You're, you're always going and you're always thinking and I'm sure you're, there's new projects. Oh my there. God, that's why I get my ideas. I'm just like, hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's how it works. So really quickly, I was just interested. I know you learned, you trained in a technique called the method. And the only reason I'm asking you this is because I just, I feel like I just watched an old friend's episode where they were teaching Joey about the method. Is this something that you've used throughout your career? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's look, each... There's a lot of acting techniques. There's the method, there's Adler, there's Meisner, there's Uta Hagen. They're like they're they're all there. And they each have kind of their joke about it. And I always say, whatever works for you. And so I don't feel like it actually, you know, when I started once I graduated, I, I continued to train with the late, amazing, great Win Hanman in New York and then Milton Katselis, who's also passed. And those two teachers for me made acting make sense to me in a way that we could apply everything I had learned in a way that actually worked. Like practical, logical? Yeah, well, actually, like, how does this, how do you use these tools in actual scene work? And when you're filming and when you're doing stuff and it's not, you know, in a class or on stage is one thing, but like, how do you take these and actually put them into practical use to do the best work you can? And for me, I didn't realize how much I didn't get until I got it. And it wasn't until I worked with these teachers that it really connected for me. And I still will do workshops. I have a coach. It's an instrument that you need to keep cultivating and hopefully keep growing and challenge yourself with. And I hope that I continue to grow. And I, it's interesting, you know, with the pandemic, it's been hard. I mean, I'm trying to be as creative as I can, but my last few years were quite difficult because of some health things and there's a lot that I'm needing to get out. And so I'm kind of cannot wait to dig myself, to dig my nails into something where I can really use everything that's been happening. I have a feeling it's going to come to you. You're calling it out to the universe. And so you actually, that was my next question. I was going to ask you, I find a common theme I find amongst you trailblazers is that you have found great mentors on the way throughout your journey. You mentioned Wynn Hanman, uh, Melton, I'm going to- Salas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then Kristen Linklater, right? Kristen Linklater was a teacher I had. Um, she was just a teacher I had in Amsterdam. She was phenomenal, but it was just kind of a short lived thing. Are, are you still in touch with all of them? So Wynn and Milton have passed and Kristen, no, she was just part of the program I was a part of. She's probably still around and she's amazing, but I don't keep in touch with her. Do you feel like, I mean, this is a cheesy question, but do you feel like you're a mentor now or you want to be? You know, I probably get five to 10 emails or messages a week from whether it be acting questions, book now thing, whatever it is, or just like life stuff. Like, I want to do this. How do I do this? You know, whatever it may be. And I answer all of them. I feel like if someone took the time to write out, they're obviously searching for something. And if there's something small I can offer, hopefully I'm happy to. Look, I think you should know that I feel... You know, the fact that you even responded and said yes to the podcast, not really knowing me and you answering these people's questions, whatever they like, it makes a big impact on people. So I hope I hope you know that because, you know, you are doing 10,000 things and you have two kids and the husband and you have your crazy life. But the fact that you're taking time out to help and support even people like me who are just kind of starting out. You know, I will say thank you for saying that. But I, I, I also I wish I so wish that I had had anybody, somebody 
you know, when I was starting out because I had, I, I was put into some really awful situations and made really bad choices and decisions because I didn't know any better. You know, it happens when you're like, no, nobody in an industry where you're very much a small piece of it and no one, and everyone just wants you to change your name <laughs> and become what they want you to become. And so I don't, I mean, it's, it's cheetah. It's not that hard people. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't want, if there's like even a small piece of that, you know, that I can help with, I just want people to have it a little bit easier. I'm sure it makes a great impact. And so I kind of wanted to talk about, you started your career at a time when there was very few South Asians around. I feel like when I was, I was working with Cal Penn and Lisa Ray, this is 2002. I felt like it was a really small group of you guys that were really in the film and, and TV industry. And then, you know, you've done a ton of stuff, but just wanted to point out some of the, the the big ones. I know you worked with Albert Brooks and looking for comedy in the Muslim world. And I quickly about, I'm sure it was an amazing experience. I read that Sony wanted to take the word Muslim out of the title. Was that because it, you know, having a Muslim centric story was not common in 2005? So at that time, so the title was always, I mean, I will say, you know, Albert's Albert. So he gets things made because it's him. And so that was never a secret. But then right before the movie was supposed to premiere, it was supposed to premiere at Toronto. A few months before that, when they were kind of finishing everything off, there was that person who flushed the Quran down the toilet. And there was a big story in Newsweek about it. And there was all this kind of fervor around kind of anti-Islam and Muslim. There was just all that kind of conversation. And they wanted to take it out. And Albert refused. And so they went to another studio. I know ultimately it was a shame because we were supposed to have a premiere at Toronto. We were supposed to do all these things and that didn't happen. And I think in a different time like today, there'd be a different response and you'd have an army of people behind you. But, you know, he did what he felt was right. And I and I am so glad he did. Right, right. It, it ended up working out. And then, of course, you start opposite our girl, Lisa Ray, in two lesbian themed films. I can't think straight in the world unseen. I've seen both. And I feel like they're like cult status now. And I have to ask, uh, it's probably a very, you've probably gotten this question so many times, but I just have to ask, like, was it a hard decision to make to, to take those roles? No, because I don't look at, no, I really, it's, I was like, I don't even understand. So, you know, when I, I can't think straight was the first one that I, you know, agreed to do. And when I read the script, the fact that it was a female love story was not something that I even, I mean, maybe this is naive, but it didn't even register to me. I was like, this is such a beautiful love story. It's based on a true story, which is always a privilege to play. And I loved meeting the director and producer whose story it's based on. You know, they flew me to London and they they literally said to me, pack for two months, but plan to leave in two days because we don't know if it's going to work out. And, you know, I went to meet them. I auditioned. I did the whole thing. And thankfully it worked out. But it didn't even occur to me. Like I was just telling a story of these two women. And I just thought it was a beautiful one at that. And then when the movie you know, when the movies and both of them came out, and perhaps it's also my world, my worldview being the way it was, I was not at the time, I was pretty naive into to not understanding the gravity of it. When you take two cultures, such as the Middle Eastern culture and the Indian, especially Muslim, because I play an Indian Muslim culture, and we're both gay in the film, I didn't really think about what that meant. Now, when I think about it, I'm like, oh my God, it's so obvious. Of course, it's going to have you know, a reaction. But until I started, I mean, I, I got, I would say 50-50 love and you should be killed messages on a daily basis. 
just my next question is what were the were there visceral reactions to this? And are you still getting that? Both. That's crazy. That's crazy to me. Well, and I think it's because there just hasn't at that time it was very much a new kind of piece of, of just seeing other cultures reflect the stories within, you know. Um, and I think now, I mean, there's more positive than there is negative now. I mean, I think the initial response, and I think we've all hopefully grown up a little bit. But yeah, people have problems with it. Yeah, people still do. But you know, I cannot just the last week I was sitting having dinner with some friends outside and these two girls walked by and I don't even know how they recognized me, but they did. And they were so excited and the sweetest, like the most adorable couple. And they were like, so excited to to meet me and talk about it. And I was like saying, I'm so sorry, it's COVID. We can't hug. We can't really like get close, but they were lovely. And that happens before COVID. That happens quite, I mean, I go to Trader Joe's and somebody's like, oh my God, you're like, I can't think straight in the world and seeing have become really important in a way that I could never have imagined. Do the girls know mommy does films? Do they, do they understand it? It's so funny, Ember. <laughs> so it's so funny because she's obsessed with Aladdin and Jasmine and she loves Naomi Scott in this version's Aladdin. And so whenever someone asks her who her favorite actress is, she always says Naomi Scott. And I was like, you know, I'm an actress too. And she's like, I know mommy, but you don't sing. That's what she said to me. And I was like, fair enough. Enough. <laughs> you gotta work on that girl i said why aren't you singing <laughs> she's starting to she knows a little bit like now she'll see some of my interviews she hasn't seen any of my movies most of my movies are not appropriate for her so yet but she loves my books i mean she loves being my assistant and like me i, I have to read them to her first in every stage and she has great notes and it's great in that sense that's very cute. And she will, she will. Yeah. I think mommy on screen is like, wait a minute. Mo- she's my mommy first. And then, so then in 2019, in June, you were diagnosed with breast cancer and you've been very vocal and open about your journey, which again, I think is such a huge gift to so many women that are going through it. I did ask Lisa the same question. Why did you decide to go so public about your fuck cancer journey? So I was actually diagnosed in December of 2018. I didn't go public with it until June. Wikipedia messed that up. There you go. See, Wikipedia again. (laughs) But so I wasn't sure. I had no idea what, in terms of the, the public aspect of it, it was like the farthest thing from my mind. At the time, it was so shocking and a lot to take in that I was just like getting through sometimes just the hour and sometimes the days. I was like, I can't even think about all that. And, you know, the people that knew were very clear about like, right now, I just need to keep this private. I'm not ready to like deal with all the other stuff right now. And I just need to be well. And then a few months went by, I had had double mastectomy. I had started my treatment. I had lost all my hair. Sometimes I wore my wig. Sometimes I didn't. I was getting anxious about the fact that my kids wanted me to wear my wig more. I didn't like that for obvious reasons, you know, and I was realized I was giving a lot of mixed messages to them because like, why would I wear it sometimes? Why wouldn't I? And what does that say about me? And, you know, like, I don't know, like I was going through my own stuff, but really like I was trying to explain to my children who also were so young, they were two and four at the time. I couldn't, the hardest thing is because I had a double mastectomy, I couldn't hug them, literally hug them for so long because they don't know how to like, just, you know, and there was no question that I couldn't hug them. And so I was just trying to like figure out all of it. 
And then it happened to be my birthday. And I realized that it was exactly six months from when I had been diagnosed. I was diagnosed on December 24th. It was Christmas Eve when I found out. And it was exactly six months later, June 24th. It was my birthday. And I was like, I don't know. There was something very serendipitous about that. And I felt like I was ready more for me to just not hide for my kids' sake. You know, I really wanted to kind of show them that, first of all, hair doesn't make you attractive or like that that matters. But also, you know, just for me to, I realized I just need to kind of, I was at the point where I was ready to whatever was going to come my way, which was thankfully all amazing and love and whatever that is. I was ready for that, you know. And so that's why I ultimately went public. And the reason why it became, you know, such a thing is, yes, I got an outpouring of love, but similarly, like even adults, you know, they had, there was a lot of chatter about the hair, about the physical changes, all of it. And, and then I was, it was funny. I was, I was approached by a magazine to do a cover for them and they didn't know that I had cancer. And that I had no hair because I think they had just seen me, you know, there's so I had so it's interesting. I was still on a book tour at the time and I would wear my wig when I was doing book talks and author visits at schools. And I ultimately decided that because I felt like if I didn't, it'd be so distracting and it would just become about something else. I didn't want to distract from why I was at a place. So I did for certain things in work, I did wear my wig because I just didn't want it to be about cancer. But then at home and so I found a way to balance it. But then when this cover story came to me, I said to my manager, I said, tell them I have no hair and I'm not going to do it with a wig. And if they're okay with it, I think this could be really an important thing, especially Indian women. Our hair is like such a thing. And it was for me too, by the way, I've done like hair campaigns. So the fact that now I have no vanity around my hair has been a nice blessing, but I thought it'd be really cool if they agreed and they did. And, you know, that's the image of the SEMA magazine. And I, and that so many people have been like, oh my God. Thank you for not. Well, I love that cover. I think you look fucking fantastic. I read that your little blurb next to it on your site that said you asked them to celebrate the buzz and how, and I love how you put this. You said Indian woman's hair is next level shit. It's just, that's just, it's so true. I mean, in all ways. And it's, yeah, that's, you look insanely gorgeous. I loved, I loved those photo shoots. So it was, it was great that you did that. And then you wrote these two fantastic articles, CNN and the Daily Beast. One about your decision to take your, get your last treatment during COVID. And then one about basically kind of your experience on the healthcare system, which both were, you know, I mean, very eye-opening. So the last treatment during the time of COVID, you, you know, and how herring it was, you made the decision and you went through it. Have you seen or heard a lot of cancer patients going through the same thing this year? Absolutely. And I think, or, I mean, now it's, I think, different. This is early, right? So this is when COVID just hit and every, everybody, we didn't know what we know now. There was a lot of information out there, but not really sure what that meant. I mean, there was still like, we don't know if you need masks. There was so much just flurry of, of non, any definitive answer. And that is also why my doctor was like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what's worse. I don't know what's worse, you getting COVID or not getting your treatment. And I was like, okay, so where does that leave me? You know, because that was back in March. And my last treatment was like the end of March, early April or something. So still there, and now they've separated COVID units from everything else. Everything has been hugely changed structurally for the better. But at the time, I was like, why can't we do more than one thing at the same time? And and the thing that I wrote in that, the thing that really worries me is the amount of 
people that were are not going to be early detected because they just canceled those appointments. And that happened to my friend's dad. My friend's dad was going through cancer at the same time. And they said, don't come in for your exams. And he didn't. And then he went back and it had progressed to the point where they couldn't save him. And he died last month. And that shouldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, there are stories like that across the board with, with, with different things. And so I'm glad that, you know, you made the decision to go in, you know, I'm sure it was scary. Yeah. But I knew that if I hadn't, I would be thinking about it my whole life. Like, right. It'd be, yeah. yeah. I'm sure that there, there was no way you'd be able to sleep at night. I'm sure. Healthcare system really quick. Like how is going through this change? I mean, that's a, that's a big topic. I know a whole other podcast, but what's, it feels like your point of view has changed on it a little bit after going through everything you've gone through. I mean, I don't know if it's changed. It's more just, I've had to, I've, yeah, I've had to deal with it in a way that at some point everyone's going to have to, not that everyone's going to get cancer, but everyone's going to get sick at some point. And the fact that the structure of our system is what it is, is why I wrote, I mean, the reason why I write these op-eds is really because I need a place to work out my rage. <laughs> and I have so much rage about this administration and not just them, but like just structurally how our government runs. And it's not their fault. It's been there for a long time. It's only gotten worse. But I have a lot. I mean, I'm a political junkie. It's a big part of my life. And so for me, I have a hard time turning it off. And so I was like, why don't I just and so I've started writing just for myself. And then I was like, you know, what? there might be something here and I want to share. But no, I, I fully, you know, the healthcare system should not be tied to a job. Healthcare should be a right. And it should not be a profit based system. It's clear conflict of interest when that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned in the article that how the government still doesn't view it as a basic right. And so many countries it is. And what are we doing? So, oh my God, we have so much to fix. (sighs) So in terms of community, like you're involved, I think you're still involved with Women's Voices now? I'm not. No, that was an LA organization. Yeah. That's LA. Uh, I know you're involved with Equality now, Advisory Board, and you, you did serve on President Clinton's AmeriCorps. And right now you're working with the representation project. Yes. Yeah, so I'm on the, so I'm, I'm an ambassador for first partner, Jen Siebel Newsom. She's married to Gavin Newsom of California. I'm an ambassador for her project called the representation project. They do amazing work to level the playing field in terms of representation. And then I'm on the advisory board of equality now, which we're actually having our, I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but we have a gala on Thursday, this Thursday. So if you or anybody who hears this, there'll probably be clips on it if someone, if it, if this airs after that. And it's virtual and it's an amazing group. Gloria Steinem is doing a tribute to RBG. We have Jane Fonda. We have Meryl Streep. We have, I'm doing something. There's a number of people doing stuff. And I've worked with them for years. And I can say without a doubt, they are the bar for what they do in terms of work. They, they're lawyers. They change the laws around the world to make them more equal for everybody. And they just won the International Gender Prize last year from Finland. Like they're amazing. They've been around for 28 years and do the most amazing work. And how can people get involved with that? So yeah, just go to equalitynow.org. I mean, if you'd like to, the, the gala is free. So you, all you have to do is RSVP for free. If you want to check it out a little bit of the work, that's a great time to check it out tomorrow night. It's 830 Eastern. Just go to equalitynow.org and you can RSVP. They'll send you a link and you'll get a sense of it. But in general, yeah, just uh, people can go onto equalitynow.org. There's lots of ways to help, whether it be time, volunteering, money, whatever it is people are comfortable with. I can assure you 
they're doing the best work and, and you can tell because they're, you know, they have amazing people that are, that are involved. That's awesome. Yeah. Now I was reading about it. It looked amazing. And just some current projects you're doing or have done this year. So Hummingbird coming out next year. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'd love to. So Hummingbird is a feature. I've produced a lot of things, but this is my first feature that I produced with my partner, Tanuj Chopra, who I've worked with a number of times. And he directed and wrote it. We developed it together and I'm in it. And it's this very kind of dark superhero fantasy genre film. We love genre and we wanted to do our own spin on things. And so we did a short film called Grin that people can watch on Amazon Prime for free if they want a few years ago. And when it came out, it did really well and people wanted more and we have all these ideas. So we decided to do a feature. It's in the same visual style, which for us, we love kind of beautiful avant-garde experimental kind of thoughts behind it. And so I hope it'll be out next year. We are still in post we shot it right before my cancer diagnosis, which I'm so grateful for because I'm so glad we have it in the can and that we've been work. But, you know, between my cancer and he ended up amazingly got this show running job. He's show running Delhi crime in India. He was there for like a long time. So things just life got in the way of us being able to finish it. But we're trying to finish it now. And hopefully in the next few months, it'll be done. And then we can figure out when and how we will put it out there. But it's got a great cast. It's a great cast. Yeah, it looks really cool. And then this year, I'll meet you there, a South by Southwest. I'll meet you there. Yes. So I'm in that film. It's directed and written by Iram Bilal. And it stars Farhan Tahir and Nikita Tavani. And it was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest, which is a big deal for any film, let alone independent film. So it was especially heartbreaking when, you know, we couldn't go, but it's going to be out. I just found out actually um, that it's going to be distributed. They found, uh, I think it's out next February, I believe. So people, they think the trailer and all that will start to come and it'll be out February-ish next year. Awesome. So I'm going to do a quick lightning round with you. Just just first first word, that first, first thing that comes to your mind. Who would you like to work with that you haven't yet? Riz Ahmed. You are the second or third guest that has said this, by the way. I swear to God, someone else said this recently as well. What is your guilty TV show that you're a guilty pleasure right now in terms of like TV? People's Court. People's Court? Marilyn Millian. I'm obsessed with her. I thought you were going to say something like, I just, I just watched Bollywood Wives. <laughs> I, I, I tried. You know why? You know why? I, well, I don't know why. Actually, I question myself a lot. But I used to love Neelam. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you watch Bollywood movies? Well, my mom, it's funny because I was talking about my mom and she's like, she's the girl from Kuch Kuch Hote, you know, that like brings Rahul and Anjali together with it. And I didn't realize that. And I was like, oh, that's her. I was like, okay, got it. I like her too. I love them all. I can't watch that show. Yeah, I did. And then I questioned myself for a while. <laughs> okay, you watched the whole thing. You watched all the episodes. Just kind of like in between editing and this and that. Yeah. It's just like when the girls are going, yeah. Please Okay, please tell me you at least watched Indian matchmaking. I did. Okay. Did you like it? No, I liked it. I was more I mean, look, I think it was quite accurate in how messed up Indians are in the way that they do things. I would have liked them to have gotten a little deeper 
on some of the conversations. And I feel like nobody ended up together. And they didn't even tell us that I had to look up like I had to look I was like, how is there no like, you know, at the end, they usually give you the update. I was really surprised by that. So I had to go on Google and and look because I was, of course, curious. Yeah, no, that one, that one I got through. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I feel a little bit better about myself now. So the next two, I feel like I know the answers because we kind of talked about it. What, besides journalists that don't know who the hell you are, uh, that ask you ridiculous questions, what is your biggest pet peeve? Apathy. That's a good one. Finally, again, I think you answered it, but what, if you weren't doing the 30 different jobs you're doing right now, (laughs) what would you, what would you be doing full-time? Teaching. I know you answered it, but I'm always curious. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I feel like every you have incorporated all your passions in some way, some form or another. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I'm trying I think so. I'm trying. I'm still I'm still working it out. I still hopefully have a lot of life to live and we'll keep finding new things. But I yeah, I hope so. Well, look, I the, the girl the two girlfriends that we we know in common, they both of course you've done amazing work and you you've had quite a journey, but I think the first thing they said about you was that you were a good person. And so just, just know you, you know, you win in life. That's all that matters. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so maybe writing a children's book is not going to be as easy as I thought. Let me go ahead and take that one off the to-do list. Fantastic talking to Sheetal. Please follow her. She is doing some amazing work. On IG, she is at Beneath the Sheets, which is B-E-N-E-A-T-H-T-H-E-S-H-E-E-T-Z. You can always go to her website, which is SheetalShet.com. And definitely check out equalitynow.org. I went to their virtual gala yesterday and was blown away by their work. As always, you can follow me at Ami Tuckered Out. If you enjoy my episodes, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Hopefully a nice one. If it's not nice, call me first. We'll talk it out. I will connect with you guys very soon. Thank you so much for listening. This is Ami Tuckered Out.